Volunteer day. Uh, volunteering is important. How many of you would like to give the devil a black eye? Would you like to give the devil a black eye? The spirit of this age is selfishness. We battle it in every sector of our life. A lot of what we see and the struggles that we see in so many areas is just the manifestation of the deception of the gar- in the garden of take care of yourself, nobody else. So, volunteering in the kingdom of God is one of the ways that God is going to help you battle the innate nature that we all have of taking care of ourselves. And so, serving, finding a place to serve, finding a place to minister will help you, and it helps the kingdom, and uh, it helps us to give the devil a black eye. So sign up for something. It, and serving doesn't mean you have to serve here. We, we certainly recognize that. All serving is not done within the walls of the church. A lot of serving is not visible to us, and a lot of you serve in a lot of different ways that are outside of the church. But I would encourage you to find also a place where you can serve the body, and uh, it'll be a blessing to you. It'll help you to grow up, mature. It'll challenge you in all of those things. Uh, so thank you for your prayers. I do appreciate them. Uh, and if you have been praying for me, and so you think, well, he's getting better. I can stop now. Uh, you know, I need prayers all the time. <laughs> so keep praying for me, uh, that the Lord would give me strength and wisdom. Uh, we're going to start a new, ser- new, ser- no, <laughs> new series today. I haven't had any pain pills in a day, so I, you know, but I still could say something crazy, but that can happen anytime anyway. So it's not necessarily pain pill related. Uh, would someone bring me some, a bottle of water? Because I thirst. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so we're going to start a new series today, Surviving the Survival Manual for Tough Times. And so we're in some pretty tough times. Uh, and we have been. And, uh, and this is the good news. We will be. So today, I want to entitle this first sermon in the series, I'm, I want to entitle it, Expect the Unexpected. If you want to prepare for tough times, one of the, uh, one of the most important things you can do for, for and about tough times is to prepare for it. If, if you can expect that there's going to be probably knock this off later, but we'll, we'll try. Keep it out of the way. Uh, one of the key things to surviving difficult days is to expect it. Think about this. If, uh, if you had known it was going to be that cold for that many days, then you would have prepared better, right? Maybe you'd have gotten a generator I have a generator, but I haven't started it in about two years. So if I was going to use that generator long before the storm and before I had the surgery, which meant that I couldn't, I was totally debilitated and really couldn't do anything, was worthless. Uh, 
before that, I should have prepared that generator for use. I, should, I, would, have had, I would have had fuel for it. It wouldn't be sitting uh, at my shop. It would, be at, it would have been at my house. But I didn't make that preparation because, you know, we've all heard these uh, weather requests, rather weather predictions before. And uh, it's amazing to me that we feel like we can predict the elements of climate change, but we're not very good at tomorrow. <laughs> you know, we're going to tell you what's going to happen in 50 years, 75 years, 100 years, but, but tomorrow escapes our grasp. And they, this, they actually were accurate this time. They said, you know, there's this polar vortex coming. Uh, maybe you'd have stored up some fresh water because, you know, who saw that coming? That we also would we have a power problem, then we'd have a water problem. And uh, maybe you'd stack, stocked up on firewood and uh, so that you'd, uh, or propane, and propane accessories. <laughs> uh, I had had a problem with my heater in my house for a long time. And actually, when I got a new heater like three years ago, just off the cuff, my AC guy about a year ago said, hey, I need to hook up that heat element in your, in your unit. It was like, okay. I, I didn't know it wasn't hooked up. So as we get closer to this, I go and pull the side panel off the heater and realize, yeah, the heat element doesn't have any power to it. And he's retired. And everybody, you know, was like, we're busy or we can't go anywhere. I mean, nobody could move. So uh, if I, you know, if I'd known, right, if I'd really believed it, I would have, I would have prepared better. I would have got the heater checked out. So one of the keys, if you want to prepare yourself uh, for tough times, you have to expect tough times. You have to expect the, even the unexpected. That doesn't even make sense, does it? But expect the unexpected. Listen to how Jesus, Jesus knew what was coming. Mark 8, 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He said, you're not thinking about the kingdom. You're thinking about your kingdom. Now this is going to mess up your kingdom. You see, the Jews were looking for a Messiah, but they were not looking for a suffering Messiah. They, 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 knew, they knew Isaiah 53 but they didn't read Isaiah 53 the way we do in hindsight. They, they had already a system worked out about how the Messiah was going to come. And it was so solidified in their minds that even when Jesus told them plainly, they rejected it. They didn't receive it. So much so that even after his resurrection, when he met the men on the road to Emmaus, and they're all disconcerted, and they're, they're upset. And he said, where are you upset? He said, well, you haven't seen what has happened, that the, who we thought the Messiah uh, was crucified. 
And so Jesus then explains to them the scriptures, and their eyes were opened. So it, it, it took almost an, an opening of their eyes to recognize after the resurrection that Jesus was going to suffer. They didn't see it. Uh, I, would, I would say to you, and I'm, I'm not trying to pick a fight here, uh, but this will, uh, modern end times belief systems do much the same thing. And I would say, when you look at a modern end time, this is how it's going to happen. And, you know, there's been all kinds of books written. And, you know, uh, you know when Jesus comes back, there's going to be so many guys going to be so messed up because their charts are going to be off. And, uh, you know, they're going to be standing and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus, this doesn't align. You can't come back yet. This doesn't align with the book that I just finished. There's all kinds of systems. And they're... Uh, they're all wrong. I mean, they're not all completely wrong. They're not wrong in every area. And I can't even tell you where they are wrong. But what I do want to say is, I know that God is deliberately obscure when he wants to be deliberately obscure. And there's no way of knowing it. When, when he says, only the Father knows... If Jesus, the Son of God, fully God in the Trinity says, hey, there's an area here that only the Father knows, I'm pretty sure I'm not figuring it out. <laughs> right? So, so Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus told the apostles, uh, Many times he told them to expect difficult days. John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you might possibly have trouble. What does he say? You will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. That doesn't mean that you won't have trouble. It means that you will have the overcoming Christ in you and with you in the midst of the trouble, but you're still going to have trouble. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. He said, you know, hey guys, expect this. They're going to persecute you. Some they're going to drag off and kill. I just want, you know, he didn't say, listen, guys, follow me. It's a bed of roses. He wanted to prepare them by letting them know, hey, expect that there's going to be persecution, expect that there's going to be difficulty, expect there's going to be struggle, and you will prepare yourself for what's coming. Listen to what the apostles told the early church much the same thing. Acts chapter 4, verse 21. They're, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples, then returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. That means, wait, wait a minute. So they gave them an encouraging message. This is the encouraging message. It's going to be tough. How do you get, you got to get ready. You got to prepare yourself that there's going to be tough, difficult days ahead. 1 Thessalonians 3, 4, 3, 3, 3 and 4. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we, we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out 
That way, as you all know, you well know, he said, we told you we're going to be persecuted, and voila, here it is. 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Isn't that a way to describe, you describe something, the fiery ordeal? It's like, when you have a fire, you have a panic. Don't be, don't be surprised that the fire that has been ignited among you, and what it's, so it's like, when, when there's a fire, fiery ordeal, it's like, what, hey, what, hey, what do we do? He said, don't be surprised at that, that has come on you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit and glory of God rest on you. James, the brother of Jesus. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If you really expect it, then you should prepare for it as best you can. You can prepare your faith and you can prepare your mind. If you're expecting something to happen, then you can prepare yourself. If you know it's coming. So, Jesus, when he called Paul to be his disciple, he told Ananias, he said, listen, I want you to pray and go pray for this man. Ananias, is that for him? Because I've heard bad things about him. He's not a good dude. And God says, no, I've chosen him. But the Lord said, Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So this was, part of, this was part of Paul's call, is that when Ananias goes and lays hands on him and says, hey, God's going to give you your vision back, he said, also, he's going to show him everything that he's going to suffer to say yes to following Christ. And he says that to prepare him so that he'll know. Then Acts 23, Jesus gives Paul his marching orders about going to Jerusalem. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So because of that, Paul is then sent. He creates a disturbance, or disturbance is created in Jerusalem. Some Asiatic Jews begin to uh, cause problems, and uh, there's a great... There's a great uh, kind of a riot in the temple, and they seize Paul, and Paul appeals eventually to Caesar, and this precipitates him being sent to Rome. So God's way of sending Paul to Rome is to get him arrested. Now, it's interesting that when God called Paul and said, I'm going to show you what you're going to suffer. And then he said to him, hey, I'm, you're going to go to Rome. He didn't say, you're going to go to Rome as a prisoner. I mean, it would have been an easy blank to fill in, right? But he didn't tell him. He just said, hey, Paul, guess what? You're going to Rome. And 
the way God chooses to do it is that he gets Paul arrested. Now, if, if God's going to send me to Rome, that's not the way I'm picking. Because I'm going to say, hey, let me gather a couple of my close buds, you know, that have traveled with me in these other missionary travels, and we'll, we'll make our way to Rome, and we'll get to evangelize and plant some churches along the way. And it could have been a great plan. It would have been a wonderful plan. And, and, but it wasn't what God had in store. So we have this great journey. It's, it's long. I'm going to read it all because it's the only way to do it. I mean, I could tell the story, but I'm just going to read it this way because it is the Word of God, and I think the Word of God is powerful for us to listen to. So Paul is on his way now as a prisoner to Rome. When it was decided that we would sell for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adrithium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends that might, he might, they might prepare, provide for his needs. Now, a Roman prisoner was not provided for by Rome. If you were a prisoner, you had to have people who brought you food and probably a bribe for the guards so that you would get it. And so what has happened is that this centurion is allowing Paul to go and procure some things from his friends so that he will have provision for the trip. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed in Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship, so they, they changed ships to this large, a large grain ship. We know it's a big ship because not only does it have, is it hauling a big load of grain, but it has 276 people on board. Think about that. First century. This is a ship that holds 276 people. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty riding off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost, and the sailing had already become dangerous because it was now the day after the atonement. It's the end of September uh, in our calendar. It's the beginning of winter. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss of ship and cargo and to our lives also. So Paul's saying, you know, he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner, and he says, hey, guys, I just want you to know I want to advise against this. I, I don't think this is the best plan. But the centurion, I mean, you know, I mean, he's just a prisoner. They're thinking, what, what, this guy, I mean, he's at best a preacher. What does he know? Uh, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship, which you would think carry a lot of weight, Right. Since the harbor was insuitable to winter, unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided they should sail on, reaching, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. 
there was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. So they're on the southern part of Crete, and they're trying to just make their way from one port on the south of Crete to another port that's a better wintering port. Uh, uh, and I've lost them. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore to Crete. But for very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Nor'easter swept down from the island, and the ship was caught in the storm. So now it's being pushed out away from Crete, out into the middle of the Mediterranean, just south of the boot of Italy. And they and were being driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Clauda, Clauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Not encouraging. Right, you know. So now we're going to tie this ship together <laughs> in hopes that it holds these winds. Uh, because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbar of Sirtis, they lowered the sea acre. And the sea acre is uh, like a, a, a big parachute. So you have anchors that catch the bottom, and you have anchors that just catch seawater. So the purpose of this was to, as the, as the boat was driven along by the wind, to keep the bow of the boat in the right direction so that it wouldn't... It would, so the boat wouldn't be sideways to big waves and roll the boat over. So, so they've put out the, the sea anchor, which is an anchor that is just like holding lots of seawater and being dragged along, and let the ship be driven along. We, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw cargo overboard. On the third, third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, <laughs> you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete. I mean, you know, sometimes when I told you so is a sweet, is a sweet thing, right? He says, Men, you should have taken my advice. You know, the preacher who doesn't know anything about boats <laughs> not to sell from Crete, then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. And he said, don't be afraid. He said, no, wait. Last night an angel of God whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. Remember I told you you're going to Rome? You're still going to Rome. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God. So it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Wow. Now, now you see how God is uh, raising Paul's influence? He had no influence in the beginning. He's just a prisoner. And then he's a prisoner with an opinion that gets rejected. Now he's a prisoner with a promise. And he says he's encouraging these guys in the midst of this storm, and they don't see any way out. I found often right in the middle of your greatest difficulty, when you're going through the darkest days of what you're going through, you don't know it's the darkest days, but as you're in the midst of it, Jesus will meet you in his word, by his spirit, and he'll give you a word to stand on. 
and at the same time fill you with his peace. So you're in the midst of a, a great time, a great difficulty, and you're seeking the Lord, and you don't know what to do, and you don't know the way out, and God will come and, and give you a word. And it may, you know, sometimes the Lord has just said to me very clearly, trust me. It was like, well, can I get more detail than that? Uh, no. Trust me. But right, when you feel like it, there's no way out, then often in the midst of that, God will come just as the angel of the Lord stood beside him, that the Lord will stand beside you. And there's, there's several things that you realize, oh, God is with me. His word is true. He... He has, you know, because you feel forgotten. You feel like, you feel like God's not listening. You feel like maybe he put you on this boat to take you out. And you don't understand what's going on. And so you're struggling. In the midst of that struggle, God speaks in, steps in with his word and gives you a promise, gives you assurance, gives you his peace. And it doesn't make sense. All of a sudden, you have a peace. In the midst of the storm, a peace that the Bible calls that passes understanding. Peace that the world cannot give and peace that the world cannot take away. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings and found it was 90 feet deep, which means it's getting shallow. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the so soldiers cut the ropes. Now, now he is the voice of authority, Right? Unless, unless you cut this lifeboat away, it's like, I don't know, it seems like a good idea to have a lifeboat, right? And Paul says, salvation's not coming through this lifeboat. Salvation's coming by God. So you need to cut away this, uh, this other little way that you've decided will work. You ever do that? You ever figure out a way for God that's an, another little way? Another little way for, hey, here's another way for God. Hey, 286 people can't get on the lifeboat, Right? Often it's a selfish little way. <laughs> Here's a way for us to survive. So they dropped, uh, then Paul said to the soldier, unless they miss on the ship, they're going to be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. For the last 14 days, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food for you need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Now that's a, that's a promise, isn't it? I mean, they're, in the, they're still in the middle of the storm. The boat is coming apart. They've got it anchored in the back, and the waves are beating on the boat, and they're actually beating the boat apart. They know at any moment the boat is going gonna, is gonna to crack in two and, and come apart. So then after he said this, they took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves all together. There were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. 
So God had called, taken, and through the midst of difficulty, he had taken a man who had no voice to a man who was the voice of God. And they all began to listen to him. Everyone is listening to him. Everyone is doing. Before, nobody cared what he thought. Now everybody's like, what's Paul got to say about this? When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. They then hoisted the foresail of the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and wouldn't move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent them all from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Saul's life and to keep him from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. And the rest were to get their own planks on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. It worked. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta, and the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and he put it on the fire. A viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. And the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand. They said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. I mean, mean, wouldn't you be tempted in the moment to say, really, God? (laughs) I mean, honestly, has this not been enough? See, but God, God had a purpose for the snake. Look what happens. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Well, that's a, that's a change, right? This man deserves to die. Justice has commended him to death. Oh, well, he must be a god because he didn't die. So this gave him, you know, great authority in their minds. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, Publius the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sell, they furnished us with supplies we needed. What a journey. What a journey. Paul would never have... If you've given Paul a multiple choice quiz, this was not on the quiz. He's not choosing A, B, or C, right? Neither would we. See, God works sovereignly in ways we can't comprehend to accomplish greater good for his glory and for the kingdom of God. God's way, Paul's way, he would have had a safe little group of guys would have gathered with him. They'd have made their way to Rome and they'd planted some churches and done some things. God's way, God had Paul interact with literally hundreds of people that would have never heard the gospel any other way. So now he's got a centurion that it's like, wow, this man's got something going on. He's got ship owner and a ship's captain and 276 other people on that boat that are saying, wow, this guy's God is God. 
So he's taking him on a journey that Paul wouldn't have chosen and we wouldn't have chosen, but he's taking him on a journey. So now this whole island full of idol worshipers. And the leader of the island whose father is dying, sick and dying, and all the people that got healed all along this journey, God's using Paul to reach out to the people around him. And God uses that in our lives. God uses in the midst of difficulty. Often we think our witness is when things are going well. Often your most powerful witness is when things are going crappy. Here's the reality. Expect the unexpected. Life is hard. Life is hard. I've often said this, and, this is, you know, and I encourage you. They encourage the disciples by saying to them, you, you inherit the kingdom with much tribulation. I want to tell you this. Life is a series of problems, then you die. If you're out of problems, you're going home. Life is a series of challenges. Life is hard. Marriage is a challenge. Marriage is hard because you're taking two very different people and trying to blend their lives together, and then just when about they get it figured out, they have kids. And parenting is hard. Parenting, marriage is wonderful, and marriage is difficult. Parenting is a delight, and parenting is difficult. Work is often unrewarding, but work is often necessary. So what you want to ask in the midst of that is that you're in the midst of difficulty. One of the things that I do in premarital counseling is I try to help couples realize this is going to be harder than you think. Right now, the feelings that you feel, there's going to be days when all of those feelings are gone. And the only thing that's going to hold you together is the commitment and promises that you've made. That's, that's it. It's like, no, not us. We love each other too much. Then you are going to have more trouble than everybody else because you're a ditz. You know. <laughs> I don't ever say that. I just think that. That's those, that's those things that you, you're thinking and you think, oh, I can't say that. I ought to say that. But, so you just try to encourage them. Here's the reality. So what we want to ask is, what, what in the midst of this, what is it that God's doing in me? What is it? Here I am in the midst of a difficult season. There's got to be something that God wants me to learn. I don't want to waste this. God never wastes anything in your life. What is it in this season that God, does he want me to be more compassionate to other people as they go through similar things? Does he want me to be more empathetic as, as I have more understanding for people going through these things? What is it that God wants me to learn? What, what, what is he doing in me? And then the second thing is, what is it that God's going to do through me in this? How is it that God wants me to, in the midst of this storm, how is God going to change my influence? You thought about that? How God took Paul's influence so that in the midst of the storm, he went from no influence to being able to say, hey, this is what God's going to do. Hey, y'all, watch this. Watch this. Watch what my God can do. And God's going to work in you and through you to do things you never would have seen it coming. But he did. Amen. Well, it went over, so let's stand and pray. 
You stand. I'm just going to sit here. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, giving us your strength. Help us, Lord, to prepare, to expect the unexpected, to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, to not live in fear, but to live in faith, knowing that everything that we're going to go through, we will never go through it alone, that you will stand with us and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.